Hello, and welcome to Geek Between the Lines, a podcast that explores compelling ideas and some of our favorite geeky properties. I'm Brittany. And I'm Chris. And this week we are continuing our watch through of The Magicians, and we're going to be discussing Season 1, Episode 9, The Writing Room. Chris, can you give us a recap of what happens in this chapter? Quentin discovers that Penny destroyed the manuscript given to him by Eliza in the first episode. Rude. Penny relates that it was a book written about Fillory by Jane Chatwin, and not by Christopher Plover, in which Jane wanted to clarify what actually happened to the Chatwins. Ooh. Elliot, trying to distract himself from the pain of killing Mike, joins Quentin, Penny, and Alice in traveling to the Plover estate to search for a magical button which, according to Jane's book, is a key to the door to Fillory. They find that the mansion is haunted by the ghosts of Plover's housekeeper's children, George and Beatrix, Creepy. whom Plover's sister Prudence had drugged and killed. The hauntings show what life in the mansion was like for Martin, Jane, George, and Beatrix, under the abusive control of Plover and Prudence. Ultimately, Quentin discovers that Plover was molesting Martin Chatwin and was learning magic so that he could travel to Fillory. Seeing the horrors of his child abuse and hearing Plover talk about growing extra fingers to perform more complicated spells, Quentin realizes that Plover, the author he once idolized, is the Beast. Dun, dun, dun. By following the hauntings, the four find the button with the children's corpses but they struggle with how to help George and Beatrix's ghosts. Alice, in particular, is pained that they are unable to do anything for the children's spirits, while Elliot chews her out for acting like she can fix anything. Nom 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 nom. <laughs> you said choose her out. Yes, that's true. <laughs> okay, sure. <laughs> Meanwhile, Richard convinces Julia to use her magic in penance by entering the mind of a paralyzed mute woman, Kira. Kira imparts a perfected spell to Julia, then asks Julia to kill her and let her rest. Jules resists the idea, but ultimately Richard convinces her that it is the best way to help Kira. At the end of the episode, Penny mentions feeling power coming from the button. Despite Quentin's warning, he touches it, instantly transported away as the episode ends. Whoops. Yeah, so, like always, a lot happens. Yes, indeed. <laughs> this is quite the episode. Yeah, it's, it's a very important episode in this series. So before we get into it, Content warning that we will discuss part of what's in this episode, which is sexual abuse of children. So And physical abuse. And yes, <laughs> that too. So going from that warning <laughs> into magic moments. Oh no. Uh, what, are, what are the magic moments that were hitting you this episode? One moment that hit me, I think for the first time, was I noticed that Alice called Quentin Q. And especially after seeing their notes to one another, I think of Q as being the nickname that Julia had for Quentin. Since Alice and Julia haven't met, I wonder now if Quentin asks them to call him Q, if that's a nickname that he likes and so he asks them to do it, or mm. if people at Break Bills happen to start calling him Q just like Julia did, which I just find interesting. I, I know for whatever reason... I've had multiple groups of friends who are completely disconnected start calling me by my first and last name, <laughs> like just letting it flow. And for whatever reason, they all thought that, that was just like an appropriate name for me. And I was like, why? And none of them could give me a good reason, but it happened to multiple people that had no connection with one another. Is it because sometimes you seem like a 70 year old man? I mean, quite possibly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, it just, I think, is a an interesting moment there to think about how that came about in their relationship. Mm. 
Visually, I really appreciated the imagery of Kira's mind as she died. Mm-hmm. And the yeah. slowly darkening park that they were in. I think it was just a, a really well-shot and powerful way of representing what she was experiencing and letting us be with her as she was experiencing it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As always, there are some great lines. Probably my favorite was, you can't possibly want to be a dick more than you want to live. Yeah, that's a great line. Which is just perfect. <laughs> oh, Penny. And then one small detail that I noticed was that Elliot and Margot's favorite pub they have a portal to... So amazing. ...is called the Ball and Sack. <laughs> oh, I didn't even notice yeah, that. Yeah, you just get an title. outside picture of it, and that's what's on it, the <laughs> oh, Ball and Sack. Of course. Yeah. Of course this is their favorite pub. Right. But also, I want to create a portal to some of my favorite places. Totally, <laughs> that right? That would be so cool. That would be amazing. Just one to Kyoto. You could just, exactly. You know, walk around, have good food. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I want that spell, and I also want the ability to have a flask that never empties. Yeah, that that's also <laughs> excellent. Yeah. Magicians Great. can save so much money. Yeah, right? <laughs> they don't need plane tickets. They don't need to buy new alcohol. Right? Everything's yeah. so convenient for them. Right? <laughs> Gimme. But why don't you give me your magic moments? Wow, excellent transition, Chris. Thanks. I really enjoyed how the episode opens with Julia's amends letter mm. to Quentin and that she definitely apologizes, but she also says, you fucked up too. Yeah. And it broke us and I'm working on forgiving you, which I just like because it's not just simple. Mm-hmm. You know? And she's trying to apologize for her part in what she did to Quentin. And yeah, I don't know, I've never done any sorts of practices like that with amends letters maybe it's just not doing it quote unquote right <laughs> by being accusatory of Quentin at the same time I I have no idea but I just enjoy that not only is she still saying that I'm taking responsibility for what I did you also need to take responsibility for what you did mm-hmm. and how it has really damaged our relationship But it's also reminding the audience that both of these things are true. Both of them have wronged each other as they try to move forward from this. Yeah, really strong framing for the episode. Yeah. uh, And especially for Julia's journey in the episode. Absolutely. And the fact that her amends letter was so much better than Quentin's response. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I was so annoyed until it gets to the finally last time he Mm -hmm. says, I'm sorry, too. I'm like, okay. Maybe let's give a little bit more, Quentin. Maybe say, I was being an elitist asshole. (laughs) Let's delve a little deeper into your part in this. But, you know. Absolutely. But I think you're absolutely right. It's also a great character moment for both of them. I remember, I think in our first episode, you were talking about how Julia questions things. She doesn't just follow orders, you know, Mm -hmm. and that's what she says that break bill should want and here similarly she's going through these steps but she's not just abiding by all the rules if they don't make sense to her mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. i think that that's a very julia thing to do yeah. um, so it's yeah. really cool seeing her engaging with that with the program that she's in so yeah it's, it's interesting yeah yeah it's it's really great to get to see Julia in this episode really kind of finding her way back to herself mm-hmm. uh 
like you were just saying, she has the inquisitive mind. She has the personality that pushes back against something that doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. But then she also has, like we saw from the first episode of the series, this very caring, supportive side, too, that you get to see with her interacting with Kira. She even asks, do you want me to stay as mm. she's dying? You know, she doesn't really know this person. She hasn't spent a lot of time with this person, but she wants to be there to be a support, to, to be present with them. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's really nice after... Uh, a few episodes, several episodes of the more destructive Julia uh, to see her finding ways to lean less into her anger and her individualistic desires for knowledge and further study and, and being able to lean into other parts of herself that are a little more community-based. Mm -hmm. Totally, yeah. So there were also some great Penny moments. As always. Of course. We'll just brush right by how cool his outfit <laughs> is in, in this episode with that like kind of camel colored long coat. But yes, moving right along. <laughs> I love Penny's kind of imagination of Jane's unpublished book six. Mm. In in the past, we've gotten the narration of little parts of the Fillory book from Quentin's perspective. Mm -hmm. And it looks very different. It sounds very different. And then you get Penny's version, which is just more crass and ridiculous. And he's forgotten parts and yeah. he's not taking it seriously. And then there's the adorable little pig with the fancy so collar that's so cute. And like, whenever I see paintings or whatever and just be like oh my god people used to wear those things They're like it looks so ridiculous on humans but on the pig it's like so adorable it's cute. and so it's just like yeah him not remembering the animals and Quentin's like one of the questing bees like, <laughs> it, it was just a great juxtaposition to Quentin's version of how he thinks about these books and then Penny's not taking it very seriously very amusing very fun moment yeah. Also, wonderful moment once they decide, okay, we should go to this Plover's Mansion and see if we can find the button. <laughs> They're like, what's the quickest way to England? And they turn around and Penny's already just traveled <laughs> without them. It's just so great. And it's great. We don't even see them meet back up. Yeah. <laughs> you just know that he went there on his own. Yeah. And they had to find their own way. Yeah. Well, exactly. And I'm sure part in the back of Penny's mind, he's like, I'm not taking a flight with these people. <laughs> Yeah, so just a great moment. Another great moment with him is when they first encounter these ghosts and are transported back in time. And Quentin is confused about what's going on and Penny's just like, yeah, it's a time slip. Even though Penny seems like he doesn't care mm -hmm. about anything and you wouldn't think that he would study very hard or care about education just from the type of attitude he gives off yeah but he does actually know a lot and is learning a lot and remembering a lot and is quite competent yeah i just i think that that's it's, it's a great little detail absolutely and then of course the last moment of the episode 
when he's like, Mayakovsky trained me himself. I stay put until I want to go. <laughs> and then he's transported. Oh, the hubris. I know. It's just so, so great. So yeah, just, just a wonderful moment. The last thing I have is just, I think, a great quote for this episode. When they're in this haunted mansion, Alice asks, do you know what this is? And Elliot says, a vaguely whimsical horror show. (laughs) (laughs) That is exactly what this episode is. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But when we go into our next section, which is setting and society. One thing about the haunted house and about the time slips that made me think about their society is how hauntings allow you to see and revisit scenes from the past and it just makes me exactly (laughs) it makes me imagine magical ghost hunting historians (laughs) who like who you're gonna call historians historians exactly (laughs) who specialize in hauntings because they can give you insight into what happened in the past but then debates between historians on how reliable those are as sources <laughs> because the haunting is still being produced by one person's experiences or their interpretation of their experiences. Mm-hmm. And so the same kinds of questions that come up with oral histories and more memoirs and, and things like that, where what does it mean for historical memory to take part in hauntings and all these other kinds of, you know... It's like you can have direct quotes, which would be a primary source, but your interpretation of what these haunted ghosts actually meant is your interpretation. Exactly. Yeah. And <laughs> even these hauntings, you know, is this a memory of what actually happened? I can't remember exact quotes that happened to me 50 years ago. Is a haunting going to change over time? Is it always going to be the same? You (laughs) interact with the hauntings in certain ways as we see the characters do. How does that impact what's going on? And so for people who are taking oral histories, there's a lot of discussion about how to take a oral history and understanding that the way that a oral history is taken, the interviewer is going to have an impact on the answers on what what comes Mm -hmm. out, the questions they ask, but also just their own identity. Some of the best oral histories we have about the experiences of enslaved people happened during the Great Depression, but it was mostly white researchers going out (laughs) and asking these questions. And so... They're not going to bring a perspective to the table. Exactly. So, you know, understanding those kinds of things are also interesting. And so how does the ghost hunter's identity impact how the haunting is going to take place, you know, all these other questions. Or which hauntings keep being revisited by different ghost hunter historians versus other ones in other parts of the world, which maybe they don't speak that language or, Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Problems with the archive, uh, as we call it in the historical study, become all new kinds of problems. Yeah, can you imagine the hauntings that would actually be in the United States if this was a thing? If you had, like, such horrible and unjust deaths that mm-hmm. uh, caused these hauntings, it's like, oh my god, there would just be one every couple steps. Exactly, yeah. Just indigenous mm-hmm. graveyards mm-hmm. all over the place. Exactly. Yeah. It would be obviously horrific, but... Also, yeah, there would be so much to learn that wasn't able to be recorded. Totally. Or was purposefully not recorded. Yeah, so that that certainly made me go down a a kind of brain tangent. (laughs) 
And now we've made our listeners go down with us. (laughs) But there are a couple other things that made me think about our own society. One was Quentin talking about his mental illness Mm -hmm. with Alice and how he mentions that his brain isn't fixed, but it just works better now than it did when he was first institutionalized. In its own screwed up way. Yes, exactly. (laughs) And I think that's a really great illustration of the show's respectful and responsible look at mental illness. Mm -hmm. That mental illness isn't something that gets fixed. It's something that you can build tools to navigate. And so things can get better, but it's rare for you to just be able to make it all go away. As someone who has my own mental health journey, I found really, really refreshing to see. Absolutely. As we know, Quentin is not on medication currently, but even with medication, like you and I, both on antidepressants that, for me at least, help very much. I don't actually feel very much anxiety anymore. It's pretty rare, which is awesome. And then there was one time when I got really sick and, like, just couldn't absorb my antidepressants. And, like, my anxiety just skyrocketed. Mm. And I was like, oh, yeah, this is what this was like. But that doesn't mean... I'm never going to experience anxiety again. I do sometimes. And with depression, it's mitigated by the medication I'm on. Definitely. Which is very helpful. And I appreciate so much. But that doesn't mean I don't ever have it. Or it's not there, but just like to a lesser intensity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The other thing I wanted to talk about that relates to our own society is how this episode really stands out in its treatment of child abuse Mm -hmm. and violence against children Mm -hmm. we don't often see children die on screen in american media that's so true so often it's like they cut away Mm -hmm. yeah and especially for them to die violently on screen even beatrix who is poisoned the way that she coughs up that mucousy blood is pretty visceral and then of course george is shoved against a wall And so I think that the representation of that kind of violence is a pretty brave thing for a show Mm -hmm. to do. And then it goes even further when Quentin calls out that Plover drugged and raped children. Mm -hmm. And those are words that we don't often hear. We often hear, especially for rape, euphemisms. Mm -hmm. And like you mentioned, kind of like cutting away, like we linguistically cut away we linguistically Mm. water that down if it's portrayed at all and so for that to be called out the way it is i think is really important for any narrative but also important for quentin as he is engaging with narratives Mm -hmm. he has not only the narrative of fillory but the narrative that he made of plover so for him to come to reality He has to name that reality. Mm -hmm. He can't be euphemistic with it. And so I think it's it's a really good moment, both in the kind of meta level of how it is rare in our society, but also because it provides more power to the moment for Quentin. Yeah, and I also appreciate that while the physical violence towards two of the children was shown, like you were saying, the sexual violence against Martin wasn't shown Mm -hmm. that they didn't exploit this adolescent body uh, to, to show that part. 
even when Quentin showed the picture to Prudence, we don't see what's on that picture. Yeah. Uh, because we shouldn't be seeing what's on that picture, but we know what's happening here. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Let's not exploit someone in trying to show the exploitation. Yeah, because then what? Are you, who are you catering to? What are mm. you attempting to do? Are you being sensational in that case rather yeah. than responsible? Yeah. 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 What about you? What were your notes for setting in society? So one thing that I was thinking about and appreciating in this episode was with Julia's storyline, the idea of penance. Mm. And penance is a sacrament in some Christian church denominations and also can be called reconciliation. And it's basically an action of repentance for a wrong that you've done, which in a lot of ways I actually love. There are some Protestant traditions that practice penance outside of Catholic traditions or Orthodox traditions where it's probably more common. But I didn't grow up in a Protestant tradition that did practice penance, which I'm kind of sad about because I, I don't know, I, I like the idea of simply apologizing is often way easier than doing an action that hurts in some way mm. uh, that will hopefully help you change your actions in the future because apologizing for something can be so momentary and something that maybe you wouldn't even remember that much if you apologize for things regularly. Maybe for some people where it's very, very difficult for them to apologize to anyone ever, it could be like a bigger thing and that they would remember. But oftentimes, yeah, like if you actually are doing something, if you are mm, not just verbalizing the apology, but embodying the apology and the repentance, which, you know, people who've maybe grown up in toxic uh, or oppressive Christian environments, the, the word repentance can be really, uh, like, make you bristle, I think. But I I believe repentance is to turn, mm. like, to, to turn away from what you were doing. So yeah, I just, I really like that even though I've never really like personally practiced independence because of that, but now I'm like, hmm, maybe I should sometime. Mm. <laughs> but you know, I'm not so much to give penance for. <laughs> but like, I'm not penance sometimes, uh, and especially historically, but even to this day, has some people do self-flagellation, mm. which is where people like literally whip themselves for penance, which I'm not personally a big fan of uh the the bodily harm maybe for some people it is very useful and helpful in their healing or their desire to change their actions in the future i'm not sure but i'm i think i would be much more a fan of something more like what richard is encouraging killing people <laughs> <laughs> yep <laughs> The best penance. <laughs> no, but uh, for Julia to find something that, quote, burns the tumors off your soul. Mm, yeah, great line. Because something like that is, it's not a, a one size fits all for what to do. It would be quite personal, right, to, to find something that 
that does that. And it hurts not in a self-harm sort of way, but in a way of helping you. Yeah, ugh. I feel like fundamentalist Christians have ruined a lot of words for me, but <laughs> <laughs> like cleanse, you know, mm. like I, I think it can be used as a very problematic thing, but like the idea of cleansing something that can be very healing, right? Uh, so yeah, I just, I think it's, it's really interesting. And that when Julia here asks Richard, when she first understands what Kira wants and what she's asking of her, Richard, yeah, is explaining, like, yeah, find something that'll burn the tumors off. You just donating money to this or that, it's not going to do that. And Julia says, what am I supposed to do? Richard said, whatever's hardest. And I just thought it was a really kind of interesting juxtaposition to Fogg and Mayakovsky mm. because in past episodes, Katie asked Mayakovsky, what am I supposed to do? And he said, what we all do every moment, which is decide. And when Quentin has asked Fogg, what's he supposed to do? Fogg was saying that... I don't know. <laughs> well, he was saying, I don't know, but like, there are no answers. Yeah. And here, Richard is, is giving an answer for Julia's circumstance, mm. which is whatever is hardest, which, yeah, I just thought was really interesting. Yeah, I think that kind of coincides with Richard's perspective that Julie is learning here. And you mentioned Julie is kind of coming into herself because she is also changing her perspective on magic. Magic has use in helping people. Magic mm -hmm. isn't just about building power, which was her obsession with magic. Fogg and Mayakovsky also kind of had an idea, uh, especially Fogg, of magic being about building power. And mm -hmm. I think that... Even though Julia has not gone to break bills, I think Richard's perspective on magic highlights what's missing from that education, which is a guidance in how to use magic mm. and a, an idea of actually helping society, helping people, which for some reason a lot of academic institutions shy away from. <laughs> it's like, oh, we can't encourage our students to, you know, they have to make their own choices. It's like, no, you could just say helping people's good, exploiting people's bad, uh, and make that part of your Down education. Exactly. <laughs> uh, you know, just because you're happy that you get a bunch of business majors. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Maybe we should, could shift some things. But. Just because you like the money coming in from American football teams. Exactly. <laughs> yes, yes, precisely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Another thing from those scenes with Kira that was standing out to me is just medical assistance and dying. Mm. Even recently, someone is trying to challenge that in court mm. in California. Yet at the same time, I think also very recently, Vermont passed something that makes it so that you don't have to be a Vermont resident to access uh, medical assistance and dying. And that's something that Oregon State already has had for a while. And when it first passed, I guess all of these people were like, oh, then people are just going to drive over the Oregon border and dump their elderly and things like that, uh, uh, trying to oppose this law being able to move forward. But that's not what happened, <laughs> uh, shockingly. 
And since a bunch of the fears or concerns that people brought up regarding that law in Oregon have not come to fruition, Mm -hmm. other states are starting to look into maybe allowing that in in their states as well. That's great. Including Vermont. Yeah, which is a really great thing um obviously could there be circumstances where some here or there something was exploited i'm sure but like oftentimes these are situations where there are so many different criteria it's like you have to have a terminal illness that has been diagnosed and you also have to have been diagnosed with only six months or less to live Mm. to be able to access it you have to go through multiple steps of verifying that this is what you want to do. And some states also have where you literally have to administer the pills to yourself. Mm. Uh, and, and so it's like, yeah, I know it, it still can be a very controversial issue. But yeah, I, I like what Kira says here. I'm allowed to be done. Yeah, This is her life, her body having the choice, I think is a very good thing and that's coming from a person who suffers with a lot of body pain also i like that they show that it can be very difficult for another person who's witnessing it to come to terms like julia Mm -hmm. Uh, she doesn't even know kira super well but it still affects her emotionally when when she gets out of of kira's mind as she's dying you know she's crying even though, yeah, she doesn't know this person, but because somebody is dying and she had a role to play in that. So, yeah, yeah just I, I thought it was an interesting moment in the series. Yeah, agreed. And it would be great if we had that spell in real life so that we could find out what people wanted mm-hmm. <laughs> if they were in states like that. But, yeah. alas. Another thing I just thought was great is that that woman oh her name is prudence (laughs) which is just so great and then beatrix has the line when alice and elliot are trying to get out of the ropes that they're tied in Mm -hmm. using magic and she says no magic in the house like Mm. she's scared like don't use magic because magic seems to be this bad taboo thing (laughs) also prudence says to little boy George after he had been spying. Boy George? Boy George was in this episode? Uh, oh, God. Uh, <laughs> uh, she says, may God punish you. Mm. And so it's like seeing this very legalistic, violent form of Christianity that sees many different things as an affront to their religious understanding that needs to be stamped out yet at the same time the hypocrisy of her shielding her brother from any accountability for the violence that he's doing to others um and assisting in that violence exactly yeah 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 i just i thought that was a apt little little (laughs) details to put in yeah but why don't we go into our next section, which is themes and schemes. What do you have? Well, I really just wanted to kind of dive into one of the, I think, major tensions in this episode, which is in many ways revealed by Alice and Elliot's conversation about 
trying to help people. Um, and also Richard and Julia's conversations about doing penance and mm -hmm. using magic to help people. Because we see both narratives, the characters struggling with trying to figure out how to help characters who are suffering. At the same time, I think that there is this undercurrent of that being a secondary priority to them. Because obviously the four of them are there for the button and that's their main priority while they're there. Yet at the same time, they're very sympathetic to George and Beatrix and to the abuse that Martin was suffering. And, and they want to find out more. They want to help if they can. And yet that's not the narrative thrust of the episode. They're going there to get the button and that's their achievement. And I think that's really interesting because we don't see a lot of narratives that have that, that allow our protagonists to do nothing about such a horrible misfortune that they come across. You know, it reminds me of side quests in a video game where <laughs> of you, course it does. Yeah, you go and you meet an NPC who's going through this awful thing and... What is NPC for people who aren't like you? A non-playable character. Uh, <laughs> you know, just a character in the game. And typically, most games have it where either, you know, you don't have to do this for the main story, but if you want to, you can help them out and do it. But not doing so typically doesn't have a kind of ending that says, oh, you didn't help this person out. Oh, they're going to continue <laughs> to suffer this way. It's just like, oh, you chose not to spend your time on that because you're focusing on other things. But here we know we get that last shot of George and Beatrix's spirits in the windows. Mm -hmm. And we are left with the idea that, oh, they are still going to be in this location, in, in this experience, that they they are going to continue to be to be haunted themselves. That that's really, yeah, just, I think, a, a really interesting place to leave because it's something that we don't see a ton of. And it just raises some some questions, I think, on, on the narrative. And so as I was thinking through this, I started thinking also about Julia's arc. She does help Kira. She does give Kira the peace that she wants and that she was unable to gain for herself. But I'm also curious as to why they're there, because that's only the end part of what Julia does in the episode. Julia goes originally to get this spell that Kira came up with. And we don't know exactly what that does. We don't know, you know, what purpose they have for that. Uh, and I don't remember what happens next. So, so I'm curious as what it will be, but why Richard wanted to bring Julia in. I think that he did certainly want to give Kira peace, but he didn't bring Julia in with that expectation, with that as kind of the, the goal. You know, they're really focused on, on, yeah, copying the spell and that's what most of her time with Kira was was her learning and copying the spell that Kira perfected while she was in this mindscape and so yeah I think that even though Julia's story ends in a more positive way than the other four characters her own motivation and narratively the movement of the plot mirrors it in that she is obtaining something that will probably impact whatever she does next in the next episodes. And she interacts with a character who's suffering in that process. 
And so, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know if I really have anything interesting to say here <laughs> outside of just, like, I see these kinds of two parallel paths where the characters want to help those that they are around, but that in a TV show like this, the narrative is about, okay, what gets accomplished in this episode, and both of them gain something in this episode from those who are suffering. Hmm. I'm not totally sure I agree. I think there's the possibility of that it was only for the benefit or whatnot. But in last episode, Richard was saying, I'm a very good magician and I do this. Like, I'm here as a chaplain in this rehab facility Mm -hmm. because I want to help people. And it seems like completing this spell is one of Kira's dying wishes because this was part of her life's work that she isn't able to complete because of the condition that her body is in currently. Mm -hmm. And so assisting her in dying is one part of letting her have peace. But I think also her knowing that this thing that she spent so much time and energy on and even after suffering with paralysis, like has still been working on doesn't die with her you know Mm -hmm. Uh, so i i don't know yeah i think i think you're absolutely right that i I don't think this is i'm i'm not trying to kind of make this seem like richard's motivations aren't sympathetic and compassionate but just the fact that there is this spell that's kind of the center here makes me think that just the way the the producers of the show are framing this is still that the highest priority is getting the spell because that's what's going to continue on maybe the, i mean the i'm not sure that that's true do you know what they do with it exactly i i don't think that it's mentioned again specifically we'll we'll soon see that richard and julia and stuff do different spells but i don't think kira's spell is mentioned specifically Okay. So I always thought it was kind of its own thing. Maybe it could be included in stuff that they do later. Quite possibly it could, but I don't think that it's framed that way. Okay. I might be wrong, but I guess we'll see as we continue on. All right. What did you want to share? So the main theme that I want to talk about here is building off of what we've talked about previously, which is Quentin learning more about Fillory and now in this episode the author of these books that he's loved so much uh first he learned that Fillory wasn't maybe accurately represented in these books as the beast comes from Mm. Fillory and and maybe it's so much more sinister and violent or scary than it ever seemed to be and you know the virgo blade you know and these different things that he knows and is familiar with but then sees how they can be twisted to be horrific Mm -hmm. and then now at the pinnacle of that i think is even if he could be like okay these books that i love so much and that are such a part of me aren't a completely accurate representation of what fillery is but at least I can still love the books Mm -hmm. for what they are. And now he finds out about Plover, which who he calls a monster and says, 
generations of idiots have been worshipping like a literary god. Mm-hmm. This is such an important theme in the entire series. Yeah, it just being really difficult to find out that something that you've really loved and that's meant so much to you and that is like a part of you was created by somebody who did or does such horrible things. Mm-hmm. This particularly hits home at a time when J.K. Rowling has been so transphobic and using her voice currently to attack trans people and not allow them to have certain rights and access. Not only the horrors of that, which is horrible. Monstrous, even. Yes, but also through the lens of colonialism, Mm -hmm. this white English woman tells people who they are and that they can only exist on this binary, which is such a example of imperialism and colonization and what... Europeans have done to the world when all of these different cultures and societies and people groups throughout their history prior to British or other European Spanish, you know, colonization often had much more varied ideas of gender, whether that was More than two genders, like three or four or seven Mm -hmm. or all of these different types of expressions. Or even if they had primarily two genders in their culture, but those genders looked different uh, and had different expressions of that and what that constituted. And then Europeans came in, particularly Christian Europeans, and forced communities of color to except their construction of gender as the only construction, the only correct construction, and the only valid construction. And everything else was wrong or sinful or primitive, not scientific or whatever it is, when if you actually look at science, it tells an incredibly different story. Uh, Especially when people who are anti-trans always seem to forget that intersex people exist. Right. Uh, So, yeah, it's just that process as somebody who loves Harry Potter while still being able to call out instances of racism or sexism or or things like that. Yeah, it's, it's been really disappointing. And a lot of fans have stuck with the fandom while trying to be a trans and queer ally and others have left because they don't know how to reconcile those things if they they can't and so i think that this element even when they added this in this was i don't know probably a little closer to the beginning of jk rowling's things being really publicized so uh i don't even know if it was on that but i mean we have this over and over again, not just with J.K. Rowling, but with Harvey Weinstein 
and other people in in Hollywood, actors, directors, you know, people who have sexually abused others. Yeah. And so I think it's just such a relevant, important topic and theme that's in in this series because that is what we grapple with people who care about the injustices that are happening yet also love some of these fandoms and and the 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 dissonance that's there yeah and so it's it's a great moment for us to introduce (laughs) (laughs) what we're doing for our patreon book club which is going to start later this month and it's going to be a new book that came out by Claire Dieterer, and it's called Monsters, A Fan's Dilemma. <laughs> and so it's very much dealing with this idea, and the book's a deep dive into the murk of being unwilling to give up the work of art you love, and yet also being unwilling to look away from the stain of the monster who created it. And so I think it's going to be really great, a perfect time to (laughs) uh, read and just discuss this book and and grapple with this because there aren't just easy black and white answers from Picasso to Hemingway to Mm -hmm. the Bible. You know, there, there are really horrible elements of a lot of things that can also have really wonderful elements to them. And so... Yeah, as Quentin and friends grapple with this issue, we will also be grappling with this issue in our lives. So if you are interested in joining, we would absolutely love to have you. Patreon, as we've talked about before, our tier levels are all socialized. So no matter how much you can give, you get the same access to everything. So if you wanted to join and and you can afford $1 a month, we have that. If you're like, hey, I love these nerds. I want to <laughs> give $5 a month. You know, whatever it is. Uh, we would love to have your support and also your contribution with the book club. Yeah. Yeah, we can explore that tension alongside Quentin. Mm-hmm. Um, exactly. And I'm sure that, the, that our watch through and our book club will inform each other quite a bit. Absolutely. So let's move into our last big section, which is from another point of view. I wanted to talk about Penny. What? I know, right? But I actually kind of have a very different take on him in this episode. Mm. Because I find that Penny in this episode, as written, feels very different from the Penny that we've been getting to know more and more. Hmm. And so doing this exercise on Penny really came out of me often having a question of like, why is Penny acting like this Mm. throughout the episode? At the very beginning, the the quote that we mentioned, the you can't possibly want to be a dick more than you want to live. (laughs) I was feeling kind of the same way as Quentin in that conversation. I was like, why is Penny being so obstinate here when he knows that the beast is in fillery and is a threat to his life, and his life in particular. What is it that is causing him to be so dismissive of possibly exploring this element, of, of stealing the book in the first place, but then keeping that a secret from Quentin for so long and mm-hmm. not trying to find any kind of valuable information from that resource? Yeah, it, it kind of made me think a lot about... What could possibly be motivating Penny in this case? 
So yeah, this is the first episode that I feel like I've had to kind of turn to my own analysis and this kind of exercise to to find explanation for characters because it's just not in the text the same way. Mm-hmm. For me, the biggest explanation for Penny's dickishness throughout this episode is in his contrast with Quentin. Obviously, the two of them have never really gotten along, mm-hmm. uh, have been at each other's throats quite a bit, but I think that's particularly visible in this episode as he keeps getting annoyed with Quentin, correcting things on the tour. Yeah, Penny's just like huge amounts of frustration with Quentin throughout the episode, I think, is is really illustrative of what I see as, as possibly one of Penny's struggles, which is he is really looking down on Quentin's earnestness and vulnerability in that earnestness. Quentin is showing his deep love for Fillory and for these books throughout the episode. You know, I think there's an element to Penny thinking that, you know, it's not cool to care about something so much. <laughs> I'm getting less cool with every word you say. <laughs> exactly, right? I think a really illustrative line. But I think that's particularly affecting for Penny now when he has so recently been burned by caring. Obviously by Katie, you know, mm-hmm. her leaving right after he said that he loved her. Then even caring about Quentin enough to try to help protect him and getting cursed by Mike's attack. Yeah, I think that there is an an interesting explanation or interpretation of Penny in these episodes who just is so over caring about anything. And so him seeing Quentin care so much is particularly infuriating, not only because it's Quentin, but because he is doing the exact thing that Penny sees so little value in because he has had such negative experiences so recently. And, I mean, also, when they find him to have that conversation, Penny was just sitting there, feet up, smoking a joint, alone. Mm -hmm. Maybe he was able for some moments to just kind of not be thinking about all of that stuff for a second. Maybe he was able to not be thinking about the violence that just happened to his body from this blade that came from this place that Quentin idolizes yet has only ever done bad things to Penny. Mm -hmm. Then they just come in with something else and it's like interrupting him and then he gets probably some of Quentin's annoying thoughts. And, you know, it's just like, he maybe he was trying to find a little bit of peace and uh, they're interrupting that. Or maybe he wasn't finding peace at all and he was, like, thinking about some of the hurt and the pain and just doesn't want to deal with them now. Especially deal with them, this couple who seems to be happy and getting along right now. And it's just like, which you can obviously see through based on the conversations (laughs) with Alice last episode. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, but I also was kind of interpreting his actions through more of his intersectionality, Mm. too, because from the first time when Quentin and he were sharing rooms when they first got to break bills and Quentin asks him about the book six and Penny just automatically was like, what, you think I stole it? And knowing that he grew up 
in foster care law and stuff, there can be a stereotype of foster care kids as being little juvenile delinquents, Mm. you know, they aren't trustworthy or all sorts of ideas that are very problematic. So I wonder if part of it was like, oh, you automatically you're thinking that I stole your thing. When that's not what he did. He read it and then spilled beer on it. (laughs) And maybe he threw it away because he was like, if this person knows that I read it and then I ruined part of it, then he might get mad at me. And what if he reports me? Mm. So I kind of saw that as him trying to avoid being labeled as problematic as a troublemaker a troublemaker and so i was thinking you know that's one of the reasons he's kept it for so long and also that it now that even he knows quentin more he's just annoyed at him and is like well i'm not gonna talk about it now because why (laughs) i would prefer (laughs) not to talk to quentin at all also me thinking about his interesting care about being cool Mm -hmm. or what's uncool also maybe being related to him being south asian and having grown up in florida the stereotypes that can be around south asian people or asians in general of being nerds or brainy Mm -hmm. and and things that he potentially really didn't want to be perceived as yeah and maybe yeah if he's in foster care and he's an ethnic minority and he's living in florida like being cool maybe that's the only type of social yeah, yeah like social clout that he could have and if that's diminished then what yeah those are really good points i think you're right they do help kind of illustrate some of his motivation there. Yeah. So yeah, I I was kind of wondering what was going on in his head. The the big question for me was how at the end, Penny again just walks away. He doesn't even get into an argument with Alice about mm-hmm. what to do about the children. He just leaves. Yeah. And that's just such a, a an intense response. And, and as we've talked about, Penny does put himself in harm's way for people pretty often. He mm-hmm. does want to help people. He does step up pretty easily. And so for him to do that, I can imagine part of it is him being tired of being hurt, going into the hospital over and over again. Mm-hmm. Part of it being that he doesn't even care enough about them to want to try to convince them or to think about things, you know, if he also agrees with Elliot that there's just nothing that they can do, that magic doesn't have a solution, that even having the argument is a waste of time, you know, in the same way that he's just going to travel to England. He's not going to wait for them to figure (laughs) things out. He's just going to go. Yeah, it's interesting, I think, too, with the statement he made in the last episode uh, when he was in the hospital from the Virgo blade wound and... It was a funny line in how he delivered it, but also like a deeply sad line that he said, I hate magic. Mm. Magic has continuously caused so much pain in his life from growing up, being able to hear all of these voices of all of these people around him to having one consistent friend like person in his life that 
turned out to be a mass murderer. Yeah, turned out to be the beast. And then as he just found out what Christopher Plover was, Mm -hmm. what he was doing to Martin, and I wonder if that makes him feel Mm -hmm. violated in a way, too, that... He was a boy. That he was a boy, and this person would talk to him and maybe could see what he was doing and yeah feeling exposed and violated and just wanting to get away from all of it yeah poor penny poor penny hashtag poor penny yeah is that is that his whole life that's our hashtag for for penny for sure poor penny. <laughs> certainly not a best boy oh, no. <laughs> what about you whose perspective did you want to talk about Mine is Elliot. What? <laughs> I know. We're so uncharacteristic right now of who we're choosing. But I was thinking about not even his continued emotional pain mm. uh, in the aftermath of Mike and the Beast and everything he found out and killing Mike and all of that we, we clearly see in his attempt at escapism. Yeah. But outside of that, I was really just thinking about him a lot in that scene outside Plover's house right before Penny leaves. Uh, as you mentioned, he and Alice are arguing yeah. about these kids and helping them. I think Elliot shows this disgust and like incredulity at Alice thinking that she can save these kid ghosts. Mm. The lines... Alice says, those kids, they did nothing wrong. And Elliot says, you don't say. Life ain't fair. Why in the high, why in the high, holy fuck, should death be any different? Thinking that you can change anything, it's such an act of monumental ego. I mean, who the fuck do you think you are? I mean, I'm not happy with him using a derogatory term to her for vagina. Uh, I don't appreciate that type of sexist language, but mm-hmm. um, really feeling his frustration and just like, how can you possibly be this way? Like the anger and bitterness being partially at Alice's underlying privilege that she grew up with. She is horrified about what's ha- what happened to these kids and it's like, yes, it's a horrifying thing, but Elliot and Penny already know what it's like to be abused as kids. Mm-hmm. Like, they already have experienced horrible things in their childhoods that Alice just didn't, as we'll continue to see as we move on, like the privilege she grew up with. Yeah. Sure, she has this main painful moment when her brother died. But that was in her late teens. Not to say that that's not still traumatic and all of that. And but... probably affecting her because she also contacted him after death and saw some of the awful aspects of what his experiences were as an if in. And now that he's trapped in this artifact and, and things like that, like, I can imagine her, yeah, having her own internal conversations about what a good death, quote unquote, might be. Mm. Um, and this kind of triggering some of that. But... Yeah, it's very different from suffering abuse as a child. Yeah, absolutely. And you know the fact that she says those kids, they did nothing wrong. It's kind of like, well, first of all, 
kids do wrong things all the time. <laughs> like that's why adults have to teach them or try to teach them not to be selfish little monsters. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, that aside, that's all Prudence was trying to do. Yeah, <laughs> yeah really great teaching methods. <laughs> um, Alice was probably meaning to say that they didn't do anything to deserve their deaths. Yeah. To that, I would just direct anyone to a great Gandalf quote (laughs) about some of those who die deserve life and some of those who live deserve death. Can you give it to them? (laughs) And I think the fact of the matter is that kids should never be abused, no matter how well behaved or badly behaved they are. Yeah. So it doesn't matter if they did anything wrong or not. This should never have happened to anyone. Yeah, even if Penny was a troublemaker as a kid, Mm -hmm. he didn't deserve any kind of abuse in the foster system. Yeah. Or, you know, we don't know exactly if he was abused, but if he was shuffled around a ton, you know, there could be... The foster system we know is rife with abuse. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, as, as someone myself who's growing up as a kid suffered from verbal, physical, and emotional abuse, like, I can just feel Elliot's disdain and exasperation Mm. at Alice in that moment. That, of course, what's happening to them is wrong. But, like, are you only horrified about it for these two kids because Mm. you saw them? Like, this is happening to people all over all the time, and do you not care about that? Are you going to use your magic to go help all of those kids? Or is it just because you had personal interaction with these ones, Mm. you know? And just, like, the bitterness at Elliot having had such a hard, painful life. And then this person who's lived a relatively privileged life or very privileged life in many ways being outraged when it's like, of course this type of abuse exists. Are you surprised, you know? Mm-hmm. Not to say that it's not horrifying, but the the reaction to that horror just being like, oh, well, we have to fix it and save it. And it's like, it's not that simple. Yeah. And he knows more than she does magically. And he's mm-hmm. like, yeah, there are things to prevent this or there are ways to clear the house. So it's like he knows these things. It's not that if he, there was a way that he knew of that he'd just be like, no. But I think for him, it's like... It's not to just accept that injustice and abuse and stuff is just the way things are going to be, but trying to stop something when you have no power to stop it is just painful, Mm. which I think that he probably would have experienced growing up. He didn't have power to stop abuse from his father in the conservative farm area of Indiana and being bullied and you can't just magically fix those injustices. There's not just some easy answer or band-aid you can put on it, you know? I also really liked that in this episode you get these little glimpses of Elliot and Penny's relationship because Elliot offers his bottomless flask to Penny multiple times And at the end of the episode, they're both drinking together. Yeah, like you mentioned, they both walk away from the situation with this haunting. 
acknowledging that there's nothing that they can do about it and not wanting to just watch it happen because it's probably maybe it's bringing up some trauma from themselves yeah it's like they both know that injustice is part of the world and that like Margot said at the very beginning of the season, life is inherently unfair. Mm-hmm. I think that's why they're not aghast at the situation. That's why Elliot would rather spend time with Penny in this episode than two people who grew up pretty privileged and yeah. are yeah horrified in a different way. Not to mention that finding out the beast is this person who sexually abused children and Elliot had sex with this person. Mm-hmm. He didn't know it, but it's just, yeah, all so unfair and terrible. And they're the ones that it affects yeah. <laughs> Elliot and Penny and, Alice and, and Quentin are the ones who are acting hurt in this in the circumstances. So, yeah, just, I just appreciated that we got little glimpses of Elliot and Penny getting how the other two, like, just didn't get it. Yeah. Also, Quentin, at the end, is like, he just wants to find and kill Plover, mm-hmm. as if that's the answer. And it just reminds me of things like the movie Taken, uh, because I did a lot of study and I, and I also worked for an organization on anti-sex trafficking. And then a movie like Taken, where it's like, oh, my child's abducted in this way. I'm just going to go kill everyone who did that. It's just like, oh, my God, like, what a toxically masculine way to try to deal with the problem, you know? And it's just, yeah. and such uh, an American perspective, compl- <laughs> too. <laughs> and the savior complex and stuff. And it's like, I get why they're just like, no, I, I don't have the time or energy to, like, really explain all of this to you, but I'll express some of my frustration because yeah. this is not necessarily me at my best self. Too bad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> One of the reasons why. I'm not at my best self is because I've actually undergone a lot of trauma. Yeah. 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 Hashtag poor Elliot too. Seriously. And <laughs> he's, these are the saddest boys. They are. Like, oh, I love but them. It, they're both so dynamic too mm-hmm. in how they interact with the world in complicated ways. Yeah. And those complications are just so fascinating. You know, I, I like Quentin and I like Alice, but Elliot and Penny just bring so much depth <laughs> yeah. that yeah. it's just so hard to compare to that. Yeah, yeah. It's not a bad impulse for Alice to, totally. to be horrified and, and, and Quentin, but part of the reason it's so affecting is because nothing remotely similar has ever happened to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's very affecting for Elliot and Penny, too, but in a very different way and in a, a way that doesn't need to be outwardly performative, you know? Yeah. Um, like, it's not bad to want to help people, but to think that you can just go in and save a situation, especially when you're not equipped to do so, <laughs> is, yeah, a different sort of hubris that I think often can come out of privilege. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah. It's like, oh, well, we just need to take these kids away from those families. Well, then where are they going to go? Not that we don't need to do that, but if people aren't willing to take them in, then you have a whole different problem on your hands. You know, like there isn't just simple solutions in a very complicated world, especially one that doesn't prioritize abused children. Yeah. And it's not like, oh, just walk away and don't maybe ask some of your professors who might know more. Like. Professor Sunderland knows a lot about hauntings and time slips and stuff like, sure, you can ask and see what people who've actually devoted time and energy and labor, you know, into might have a lot better answers and do things that might not make you worse, you know, when, Mm. when people who are inexpertly trying to do things that they really don't know anything about. Yeah, yeah. But on that positive note, (laughs) why don't we talk about the title of the episode, uh, Revisit That, The Writing Room. What do you think? I like it. I like it too. Um, It's very evocative and it kind of, it makes me think about how for many traumas, they can be tied to physical location where those traumas occurred. And here, The Writing Room is the center of much of this trauma. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I think it's it's a good way of evoking that with some subtlety, mm-hmm. which is also necessary when you're dealing with something like that. It's not evocative for everyone. It's evocative for those who understand and those who know. Mm-hmm. I think it's a great title. Yeah. But that will wrap up this week's discussion on this episode. So what's happening next time on The Magicians? We'll be discussing episode 10, Homecoming, where we find out sex magic is a thing. Don't pretend you didn't already know that. Oh, God. But also, this show. (laughs) We would expect nothing less. Yeah. Okay, well, thanks so much for listening to this week's episode of Geek Between the Lines. Find links to our website, our social media, and our Patreon in the episode description. And again, we hope that you'll join us on Patreon so that you can get access to the book club and all the other special things that we're doing with our supporters. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week. Until then, geek geek out. out!